0: Visit iConnections.io. In 1980, a band called The Vapors had a hit. I know Stuart Sopp knows this. The name of the song was Turning Japanese. Turning Japanese was the song. I was in high school. I'm like, what are they even talking about, Turning Japanese? But oddly enough, a lot of things that have happened over the last couple of weeks leads me to believe that here in the United States, we might be turning Japanese. By the way, you're listening to the On the Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan, Danny Moses of Big Short fame. He's in Europe. He's in Italy, I believe, right now. Is that just right? Doxed him. I did what? Doxed him. I, I well, don't we know We talk what this about means. this almost every show. So what I just told people, is, what are they, is somebody going to get on an Alitalia flight and go find Danny Moses? I don't think that's going to happen. Half of New York City is in Italy right now. Let's Maybe be, more. Let's be, yeah. On this On the Tape podcast, we're going to be joined by co-founder of Current, Stuart Sop, And in the second part, we're going to be joined by the CTO, that's Chief Technology Officer and co-founder, Trevor Marshall. And we're going to talk all things tech in the fintech world. But, Stuart, you heard the way I set this up. And on Wednesday of this week, you and I met in your cafeteria. By the way, if you haven't been to the current cafeteria, it's unbelievable. Don't dox us. What is this dox again? I'm just saying we'll, it's beautiful. We'll put it in the
1: show notes, Guy, because we know Stuart that you know said, how to Stuart said, listen, I have things.
0: a meeting in two minutes. What's going on? I'm like, holy shit, this bond market is crazy. I said, you see what's going on? And I said to Stu, I know you watch these things. I think dollar-yen, I think the dollar is going to explode against the yen. I think the yen is going to continue to sort of fade away. And if you watch what's happening in the Japanese bond market, their so-called yield curve controls, which have been in place for a long time, they're losing control. And that's something Danny Moses was talking about a couple weeks ago. So as we watch 10-year yields in this country go back to 4.2%, the bond market seemingly off the rails again. From 30,000 feet, what are your thoughts on this, Stu? My favorite height. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been an eventful bond
2: week, hasn't it? As you said, JGB's kicked it off. I thought the BOJ was doing a damn good job of dealing yield curve control over the last few months. I thought they did a really good job of that. It was exceptional. Obviously, they've started to lose control. That's it. So, so you know, yeah.
0: I, I'm interrupting you. I apologize. But it's one of those things like... They do a good job until they can't. And once that genie's out of the bottle, things start to move very quickly. And you saw, I think we're at sort of a nine-year high in yields over there. And that's happening right before our very eyes.
2: Yeah. And it, there's contagion. You can see most earnings are being overshadowed, I think, by the macro environment. We've had Bill Ackman come out. Obviously, he, from what I know, I have no proof, but I heard he was in the short end, shorting two years, rolled it into the 10 and 30. And now he's out on Twitter, brooking his position, seemingly going against the Fed. I think where he's probably coming from is inflation sticky. The soft landing may not happen. And so can the... And with the 1.85 trillion... <laughs> of debt that's being issued over the next six months. Can the Fed really hold this market together? And so they've seen Japan. Now they're looking at the US and having to go at the long end. And obviously the Fed doesn't control the long end. 10 and 30 years, they don't control it unless they do yield curve control and capital controls and all those things. So we're in a sort of precarious-ish position in my view. So bear steepness are on. That's bad for risk. So of course, dollar goes up. So we've seen the dollar rally. We've seen euro dollar come off from the 111. We've seen cable, sterling dollar come up from 128 120 uh, 128ish uh, a bit lower the thing about dollar-yen, and this is me going back to my old trading days uh, of currency trading, the reason why it doesn't rip straight higher with the JGB market is what you're saying, is because now we have contagion, now we have a risk-off environment, and people have cross-yen trades on. They have Aussie yen they'll have rand yen anything that ha- has a yield, like Brazil-yen, right? I'm sure Brazil-yen, I don't know, but I'm sure it's like a huge trade, a huge long trade. And so now, like, you, those people are unwinding that. So you're selling Brazil, you're buying yen, but you're also buying dollars and selling yen. Dollar-yen gets like real cross-currented when You see the contagion on the first wave. Then eventually it snaps back in, and then
1: you'll see it go up. So we just had our first kind of big down day. That was Wednesday. We're recording this Thursday into the close. And all of this volatility we've seen in currencies and in yields, like when is it going to work its way into the stock market? We still have a VIX at 16. I think I've been
2: consistent on this year is the move index over the VIX, the VIXE or whatever you want, want to look at. And so move index is bond market volatility. We see the bond market volatility first. It will then translate into equities. It's the tail of the dog on this. And so I think equity markets have just started that unwind. We just saw great earnings. Some big companies have good earnings. And I don't think it matters. Macro environment is just like overshadowing this because it's so big. It's just such a big event that's happening. So I think at least in August for the rest of this month, I think we've got you know a decent retracement in the equity market coming. I don't think this bond market volatility is going to go away. And I think we're going to see more pressure on this best neat now.
0: We talked about this the other day on one of our market calls. August 2015, Chinese devalued the yuan. We saw some craziness in the ensuing months into the fall in global markets. And that obviously had catastrophic impact. The yuan, by the way, is right before our very eyes starting to lose some of its luster. But my concern, and I'm not saying Japan is nearly the economy China is, that's not my point, but you know you start getting into potential currency crisis, things start to happen really quickly, and you said, you're right, the Bank of Japan has done a great job, I would submit, up until this point, the same way our Federal Reserve, a lot of people would say, has done a great job, but it's the dismount and it's sticking the landing that's important. And we're not at that point yet. And that's been my concern all along, Dan, in terms of our federal reserves. Maybe speak to that. Everybody seems to think we're going to have this neat little end of year, soft landing, everything's going to be fine. But under the surface, things are getting a little messy. Currencies are
2: interesting. There's so much money and so, and so many options and so, so, so many derivatives out there that currency markets have really been quite stuck, in my view, right? You need some material liquidity event to, to, to get them going. I think what's happening is, you remember Yellen went to China? Yeah. She went to China and she started saying positive things before she went, like China's now a friend. She did the sales trip, because she knew 1.85 trillion dollars of issuance is coming she's got to sell some she's got to f- shield so some bonds th- you need to buy you need to buy so she clearly went out there Fitch as she returns downgrades America and said it was deeply unhelpful. There's obviously some politics going out there in some way. I'm also looking at the dollar Hong Kong peg and things like that. There are games behind the main game going on at this point that I am not privy to, but there is something happening, right? So there's this clear sales trip that's happened. Fitch are doing something a little odd to me, like they're definitely not in line. So I don't know what's happening there. And I think like in general, to get a crisis going, you need tectonic shifts, you need plates to shift. And I'm starting to see political or sort of macro or geopolitical plates starting to shift. So I'm with you on that. I'm just, Uncertain how to pin it at this point. I don't have enough data on it.
0: So let me ask you about shifts because I'm with you on the Janet Yellen thing. She had something to sell. She made the sales pitch. Earlier this week, I saw a headline that the United States is giving about $350 million of military aid to Taiwan. That's a giant FU to China, without question. If you watch Kyle Bass or listen to Kyle Bass or read his Twitter or whatever they call it now, he's pretty convinced that something's going to happen there. And to me, you talk about all the existential risks out there, that's an, on, on the leaderboard on my list right now, Stuart.
2: Yeah, I'm not an, a scholar on, on Congress and how money gets apportioned a here, but it sounded like Biden, the White House and the administration went around the normal controls. It sounds like they found some sort of slush fund to give them $300 mm-hmm. billion. So this is a White House that really likes war right that's clearly that that's starting to put us on a war footing they did it with russia through ukraine now it looks like through taiwan from all the intelligence and reports i've read china doesn't want a war with america a kinetic war because they'll probably just it's not good for business for them mm-hmm. and so i'm just wondering we're trying to sell bonds do we need a war right and so i'm unsure if i think there's a lot of posturing but it, 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 to me if china doesn't want one and we need them to buy
0: our bonds Let's see how this next so three, it's Brings- six months— ma- So Br- you Brings- think this is a lot of brinksmanship yeah. that will lead to nothing? Yes. Which, and and, and there is a school of thought that is in your camp
2: 100%. It feels like that. We need them right now. It would be catastrophic for supply chain. We're still heavily reliant, even our military, the U.S. military, heavily reliant on the Chinese supply chain. So I, I don't think it's in anyone's interest. I just think it's an administration posturing thing for whatever reason. And I'm just not privy to why they're doing that.
0: So we're going to shift gears. You're a Formula One person? I like, am. I like love a, Formula One. Like Emerson One. Fittipaldi. Remember <laughs> yeah, that guy? Yeah, I do. He I was – why are you laughing at me? Emerson <laughs> Fittipaldi is like a legend in the Formula yeah. One. Jackie Stewart. I met him. So you stop man. it. I have, yeah. He is. He actually man. is a great man. He, is. he actually, a lot of the safety measures you find in F1 now were put in place by Jackie Stewart. Yeah. Little known fact. Why are you looking at me like that? It's true. You're amazed that I know these things. I mentioned shifting gears because let's shift gears into some actionable stuff here. And again, Dan, right before our eyes, oil's starting to rear its ugly head yet again. And a lot of these energy stocks, which a lot of people left for dead earlier this year, They threw them by the wayside to get into these high-growth, high-valuation tech names are starting to get back on their feet again. So, Stu, you look at this, again, the macro world, but you get a little granular, and you see some of the things that I'm seeing in the energy space.
2: Yeah, I think oil specifically, that gets macro, right? So we tried to fill the SPR and the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and Saudi cut another million. And so Mm -hmm. we saw that dual release of information one day and the next day. So here we are at like 80-odd bucks, I think. Growth is slowing, but maybe not to that point. And so, like oil becomes a little tricky on that trade. I think that gas probably comes off a little bit. It's stinking hot. <laughs> There's not a lot of demand mm-hmm. for any gas heaters, and we're killing gas stoves here in the U in New York, apparently. But jokes aside, I think that gas comes to like two dollars thirty somewhere there. And I'd be looking to pick that up for end of Q three into Q four. But oil, I'm standing away from right
1: now. All right, let's talk about Bitcoin. We haven't talked about Bitcoin in a while. The Bitcoin. And so, so this is really interesting. I, and I know that this is a market that you look at fairly closely. And... It's been amazingly stable when you think about it. It's been like, 2023 has been a bit of a stair step, right? You had this big move higher. It was like a YOLO in January. Everything was working. Everything that got killed in 2022 started working in January, right? And then it pulled back, and then it had this move from 20,000 straight to, uh, it felt like 28,000, consolidated there, pulled back, and then it went from 26,000 straight to 32,000. It's pulled back a little bit here. So we've had this kind of stair step sort of action what do you think some of the biggest drivers right now are? And again, I, I love it because no one's really talking about it right now. And and I wonder if you see that as a bit of an opportunity. Also at a time where, again, we just spent a little time talking about geopolitical sort of things here. We talked about the volatility in the dollar. We've talked about inflation, that sort of thing. What's the bull case, Stu, in your opinion, right now at near $30,000 for Bitcoin?
2: Yeah, the bull case is relatively easy for me, I think. Larry Fink of BlackRock has finally... And I say finally, because in in the crypto markets, we've been talking about BlackRock, a big player coming into the market and enabling distribution for many years, four or five years, something like that. And so he's talking extremely bullishly uh, about crypto in general. I suspect that he's got real estate that he wants to tokenize. I suspect there's other reasons why he wants uh, to get into crypto. But he's also talking extremely bullishly about Bitcoin, which enables trillions of dollars of access to that liquidity. So there's a very clear case there. You've got Michael Saylor, who's just literally... Even with rates where they were, just issued a bunch of debt and bought a, a ton more. And and I think when you when you look at like this, all the macro events that we've thrown at it this year, I think we've seen the low. We saw like the FTX unwind and all that other stuff. I think we've hit 30,000, Like you say, is it's when it's stable, it feels expensive. But I, I tell you, if it, this goes up, you're going to want a lot more of of Bitcoin. I'm I'm also bullish on like Ethereum and a, and a tail of other uh, alternative coins, altcoins, and that's mainly in the gaming space.
0: Let's change race tracks because we shifted gears before, now we're going to change tracks, maybe from a Formula One to like an Indy, where Indy you just go around and around in circles, right? Whereas Formula One, you have a lot of turns and shifting. Banking sector, which is obviously something you pay attention to. A lot of these banks have done extraordinarily well over the last couple. Since earnings, for example, J.P. Morgan's going from about 137 to 150-something, actually flirting with an all-time high. So the stocks have done well, but yet we find ourselves in a situation where regulation is absolutely coming. Tighter lending standards are coming. Maybe lack of demand is coming. None of those things are particularly bullish for the banking sector. Speak to me about some of those cross currents. I think the bullish case there is
2: uh, NIM, right? Interest margin with. Fed keeps hiking, maybe has paused at this point, so that maybe, maybe this is the top. But they're just making money hand over fist. And then, of course, we blew up the small banking sector, Mm -hmm. as we all know, the crisis in the small and regional banks. And banks like SVB and uh, First Republic and whatever have just been given, really, to everyone else. You saw HSBC had a record on the SVB UK, $1.5 billion of, of cash in their pocket. And of course, JP Morgan with their nice 5 billion lift or whatever it was. So you've got the cross currencies of like, hey, there's this tighten up some of the loosest things, but then we've made the bigger banks stronger, right? Because there's been some gifts that have been given. And then the Fed is where it is, five and a quarter. This is old school banking, right? Like when we're, we're, we're buying low and selling high in, in, in interest margins, I think they do well. I think until the Fed rolls over, until inflation, core inflation really is, is properly crushed, it's a banking game and then it will be a payments game.
1: Yeah, so we mentioned Bill Ackman of Pershing Square and, and him shorting the 30-year, the okay? So he thinks rates go higher. And this brings us back to a couple months ago. Remember when Jamie Dimon sure. was talking about the 10-year, and he said this was when Fed funds was still below 5%. He said something like, you should expect to see Five, six, seven six, 7% or something like that in yields. And so it's, it's interesting what what Pershing, hit their view is that the inflation is gonna be at least the target rate, the downside target rate, and it used to be the upside target rate when it was below 2% pre-pandemic, is gonna be reset higher or something like that, okay? So talk to us a little bit about that because in our conversation with Trevor that we're just previewing here for a second, we talked about a lot of the kind of excitement around the productivity of a lot of these large language models and generative AI is gonna be productivity and that's gonna be really deflationary. So it's funny because there seems to be a lot of cross currents on this right now. And if you look at the data out of China, it's deflationary right now. So like betting on higher inflation to me is not a great bet, bringing it back to crude oil, back above 80. And you think about just how weak global growth is right now, despite the fact a shooting war between Russia and Ukraine. We just talked about the hundreds of billions of dollars that we're funneling to Taiwan, and we still are not seeing that seep into global growth. So it's not maybe much of a question, but it's something that I I think that really to focus on here, because something, either inflation, is going to stay higher and rates are going to stay higher, or we're going to choke off a lot of growth here and we're going to go into a deflationary spiral. And that's just not going to be good for risk assets. It's not going to be good for banks that we're just talking about. And it's not going to be good for yield.
2: I think what you're getting at is the structure of, do we have enough growth here to outgrow the inflation? And with all the innovation that's coming around, is that enough? Is it enough on the productivity? Is it enough on the innovation side? Uh, I don't think it's going to come quick enough. And I think we're going to go through periods of higher inflation. And then they'll settle down at a higher level of which we're doing a year on year, right? It's just, you know, okay, it's low, but like on an absolute level, we're just we're settling higher. And so we're in one of those low periods right now, where everyone's like calming down on rate hikes and all that stuff. But I don't think inflation, structurally or materially is going to go back to those levels. And so uh, and that's because of deglobalization. It's because of energy insecurity. We don't have the right policies here. We don't have the right policies in Europe either, in my view. And so I think for the next five, 10 years, I think some of these tech solutions are going to help on the cost side, but not on the innovation growth side. I don't think we're going to have that growth.
1: As a CEO of a company, and you employ a lot of people here, what when you think about how you're allocating resources, how you're spending money, and inflation was all over the place. It seems to be in less places now. It's still firmly embedded, I have to assume, in wages, right? So talk to us, what are some of the things that you see as you're kind of mapping out your financial future in the next six months, a year, and how you're going to spend? Is it really just wages? Is that the stickiest part? Are there other parts of your spend that you think about could have inflationary upward pressure?
2: Yeah. From a corporate standpoint, wages and shelter. So, real core inflation stuff here. So, New York is insane on rental cost. And that has like tricky implications for people in more transactional roles. Basically, if you're an engineer, typically paid very well, very productive. But even they struggle with some of the rents that they're seeing in New York. There's just not a lot of housing supply. And I think it's all been choked up given the dynamic of what's just happened in the housing market. And so I think that that will be pervasive. I don't think people are selling their houses because they've locked in their rates. And I think think we're not building any new houses, especially in Manhattan at least. And so you've just got shelter that's going to be sticky. It it means that the hybrid model, can you let people work from home and all this other stuff, it just, it means it's going to be around for longer. We have full employment in America, sub 4%. That's not going away either anytime soon, I think. Wages and shelter, that's really inferring from a corporate standpoint, my viewpoint on many businesses. I don't think that changes in many other companies or uh,
1: states, What what changed so much? Like, it, it seemed like there was a universal pessimism among the investor class, among the CEO class. This was at the end of last year, right? And so what do you think changed so much? Like, th- there was just a, a consensus that we were going to have a recession in 2023. And I'm just curious, investors, like, they, they turned on a dime, okay? It seems like there's still some trepidation among the CEO class for a lot of the, the, the what you've just mentioned. So there's a level of cautiousness because they don't see wages breaking you know what I mean? Or they don't see downward pressure on rent and stuff like that.
2: I, I share that trepidation. I've heard from Fortune 500 CEO types who and CFOs that they, they're still worried. They're still worried about the economy and they're still worried about going forward. And I think it's a lack of clarity. And so it, it's not because there's something happening that they understand. I think they don't understand. I think there is a massive gap of what all this economic policy, macro and fiscal, is really doing to your sector, your industry, and to your employee base. I think it's just the uncertainty that that is killing it. And then secondarily, notional. Notional prices mess everything up. Notional inflation, notional well, You may look like you're getting a wage increase, but your purchasing power could be down 10%. You get a 5% increase at 15% or whatever you can, fictional number you want to put out there, still 10% decrease in, in purchasing power. Earnings can be very good in a high inflationary environment on from the top line, but the undercurrent and the, the structure of that business may not be that good. And so, I think that's it's like the unknown with all this, all these things that are happening, and then there's that notional versus real for a lot of CFOs, a lot of CEOs. They're like, huh, is it really that? I know I'm looking good, but I don't know if it's that good.
0: Before we get out of here, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I often am wrong. I think there are 20 teams that comprise the Premier League. That's your soccer that's league, it. right? Football, as we call Football.
2: it. Football. Yeah, because we get the ball. And the some foot.
0: well-known names like... In the United States, and basically Yankees, the Red Sox, Cincinnati Reds. Just there's certain teams, Los Angeles Dodgers. So in the Premier League, there's Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal and Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester United. Those are all cities. Those are squads as well. So those are all the well-known ones, and then there are obviously lesser ones. For example, like a Birmingham City. Why are you mentioning them? Because apparently Tom Brady threw his hat in the ring. What is your, what do you make of that?
2: He's clearly never been to Birmingham.
0: <laughs> exactly, my point exactly. What is he thinking? How the mighty have fallen,
1: Dan Nathan. Are you excited about Messi being in Miami and being in the MLS?
2: Yeah, I think... Yeah, I am, actually. I mean, you saw the first game they've gone... uh, Even I, this is a big thing, because I'm not a big Messi fan, particularly. Obviously, I can respect extreme talent, best in the world and all that stuff, but I don't follow his career that much. I'm a Chelsea fan. Sure. Him going to Miami, even I was like maybe I should book a ticket. Stop maybe, it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was like, maybe I should go and see a game. If I'm thinking that, there's a lot of people thinking Yeah, but let me ask you
1: this. He scored a bunch of goals. They won three straight games in right? They were like at the were bottom of the friendlies? division. Were they friendlies? They're winning in their league. Oh, I, okay. And I don't follow the MLS, but when I was watching the highlights on Center, it looks like he's just jogging around yeah. these guys. Oh It yeah. seems like he, yeah, he's yeah. playing like a JV team or yeah, something that's right. like that. So that's it doesn't right. look like good. It looks like watching Ted Lasso soccer. <laughs> How's that? You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? <laughs> Which makes that show hard to watch, in my opinion. (laughs)
2: It's retirement football, right? So he was either going for a billion, whatever the dollars were, into the Middle East, but a different lifestyle for him. I think he has a lot of friends. He's brought friends over, other players to, to Miami. A lot, a lot of South Americans as well see Miami as the home, right? So I, I think for him, it's a lifestyle choice and it's not very taxing or tiring. I think he's not going to get injured. He's having a good lifestyle. He's got his family there. He's an American. Look, look what's not to love him? And also, I think most most importantly, the way he's getting paid is interesting. He's getting paid through Apple. He's getting merchandise deals. He's like building the ecology or the ecosystem of soccer, football in America. And I think that as a business owner, it's just better at that time of life to be a business owner than just being paid hard, cold cash. And can you please do dinner? As every night, shake a bunch of hands. He's probably feeling he's a business owner, which I think that is exciting.
0: For you football fans out there, Messi is no Dennis Stewart, which you remember Dennis Stewart, or Johan Cruyff, for example. But I digress. Before we go to break, you're about to hit the six-month mark of the Roe body program. Tell us how things are going.
1: It's going really well. I mean, listen, we, we've been talking about it on the pod, I think, for the last two months or so. And so here I am. I was, you know, in January, I was at my max weight. I was 6'2". I'm 226, okay? And this is, you know, in just gaining weight over the last, call it, 10, 15 years. I think it kind of really accelerated during the pandemic. A lot of people had this issue, okay? And so for me... I needed to make a change. I needed a platform, a program to help me do that. And that has been Rope Potty. I'm down 30 30- pounds in the six months and I just feel you know other than like I, I think I look a lot better I, I'm just a lot more comfortable I just feel a lot better I feel a lot healthier you know
0: what other things have been improved over the last six I months? mean
1: sl- sleep is the the first and foremost one I mean like I don't know about you but like I' just I'm sleeping better I'm not snoring um you know I, I you probably have this your wife in the middle of the night you get an elbow in the middle of your back because of the snoring and everything like that you know my doctor's been telling me for 10 years a lot of the things that ail you will be a lot better better if you're back under 200 pounds or so. So for me, it's been life-changing. And you know, Zach Rotano, our friend, okay, CEO, founder of Row, he was on the pod last month and he used this expression and I thought it was really good because I hadn't heard this yet. He's like, they think of Row body program as a bit of a jet pack, right? Because all of a sudden now I'm feeling like I have a lot more energy. Um, I just feel better and better rested in general. I'm getting up, I'm working out, I'm eating healthier, you know, that sort of thing. So for me, it, it most certainly has been that jetpack and not having my wife's elbow in the middle of my back at 3 in the morning um, has also been pretty great for me.
0: Save the elbows for hockey. And listen, your hard work is clearly paying off. And if our listeners want to learn more about Row Body, go to co/tape. That's r o . c o slash co/tape. When we come back, Stuart's co-founder of Current, Trevor Marshall will be joining us, so stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, energy. And equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, Their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io.
1: Welcome back to On the
0: Tape. We are
1: still joined by Stuart Sopp here, and we have his co-founder, CTO
0: of Current, Trevor Marshall. Trevor, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. Trevor could be one of these actors. He looks like one, One of, of like these actors? Like that Ryan Gosling oh, yeah. people and Ryan Reynolds. He's good-looking. I mean, Great Stuart obviously is Thank a handsome you. man. We yes, talked about obviously. that last time. But we, I mean. We, we did talk about that. He's a good-looking well, guy. Tr- Trevor, I didn't get a waiver for this, though. You're also, what does that that even mean, get a waiver? (laughs) He's also the brains behind the
1: operation. Yeah, Clearly. So So he's got the looks and the brains. I got the brawn. Oh, there we go. It's funny. So this is an interesting week in the stock market here. Like a little volatility has moved back into it. We haven't seen a lot of it. We're getting towards the tag ends of S&P 500 earnings. And it's great to have you guys here today to talk about this a little bit because it's funny. Like FinTech was like the darling in the public markets during the pandemic. And we know companies went public via SPAC, and it was just a pull forward, and, and there was a lot of really exciting things. But in the stock market this year, in a NASDAQ that's raging, right? The NASDAQ 100's up more than 40 some percent. On a day like today, after PayPal just give their Q2 guys, stocks down. It's stocks down a lot. It's trading near a 52 week low. So as you guys are tracking this, you guys are building a company in the space, in the private markets. As you're tracking what's going on in the public markets, is it just a disconnect between what investors' expectations were? in 2020 and 2021. And just now the logic that there's a lot more competition. We've seen a lot of behavior moderate a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about what you guys are seeing or what you take away from the public markets, at least the way investors are treating the guidance that PayPal just gave.
3: I'd look to Stu for some of the investor sentiment side of things, but there are some fundamental shifts happening in payments that will be playing out over the next couple of years. But especially this move towards real-time, faster payments. It's a fundamental change. At the end of the day, we're moving from really a pull model, which is what Interchange and Visa MasterCard and a lot of other companies build on, towards a push model where you're shifting liability in a way that should really erode some of the fundamental economics in the space. So
1: this is a huge disruption that will play out Who's most at risk? You just mentioned, obviously, Visa and MasterCard. These are two massive market cap companies, and we talk about them all the time. They don't take credit risk, so when we have those sorts of periods, right, and we see the way some of the Money Center Banks Act or in American Express or something like that, they've been really stalwarts, if you will. Are they going to be faced with a lot of this disruption? I I think
3: I've said it on this podcast or on OK Computer before, but Visa is my favorite fintech, and they've been ahead of this game, actually, in a pretty serious way. They have this whole network, Visa Direct, which is these card-to-card payments, And they've been thinking towards this for quite some time. And they're best positioned of a lot of the folks in the legacy space to take advantage of this. They did a partnership with PayPal and Venmo, and there's a lot more partners that are going to be announced on Visa Plus, where you can go across these different P2P apps on Visa Rails. And so they saw this gap starting to form where the nature of payments is starting to shift, and they filled that with a product that, yes, might have slightly lower interchange economics and might be a bit of cannibalization of the main model, but it is now aligned with consumer expectations. Eventually, it'll be merchant expectations. A lot of money movement and the payments business is going to be moving towards these types of push models.
0: I'm not asking you to play stock market here, but do you think the market understands what you just said? Because valuation on the back of something like that should be significantly higher than the current value. And they've always traded at somewhat of a premium valuation, but what you just described is cutting edge stuff.
3: Yeah, I think the real economic weight of that only comes in a couple of years down the line. And how much do you discount that? I think it is a good question when you're looking at the stock price today. But from my experience working with these networks, with these partners, it does seem like they have quite a big edge in the way that this is transitioning, especially this is just this month. We're moving away from ACH, which is all of the automated money movement within the U.S. towards FedNow, which is this real-time gross settlement system. And there's a lot of businesses that are built on
1: that today. So the the valuation one's a good one. And Stu, maybe you could weigh in here a little bit because when you think about a PayPal, for instance, okay, here's a company that trades well below a market multiple. It trades at 13 times, but to your point, and I think it's really interesting to frame it this way, Visa as your favorite fintech, it's a half a trillion dollar market cap that trades at 15 times sales. There are not too many companies of that size that trade at a multiple of sales like that, 27 times earnings. It is trading like it's 2021, And it's the hottest fintech stock out there.
2: I think for all the reasons that Trevor just mentioned, when it comes to PayPal, and it's a payments business, as we already, maybe if we all agree on that, it helps. You got this interplay between banks and payment services, payment companies. And so in a high interest, high yield environment with the Fed raising rates and all that stuff, it favors banks. It deprioritizes payment companies, which are really growth companies, right? So you spend, you've got money in the bank and all that stuff. Inflation doesn't erode that. And so what we saw, I think, in the last couple of days is PayPal has leadership issues, which is one separate thing, right? So they've got like a transition thing going on. Two, we've just had Bill Ackman short the 30s and the 10s. We've got the Fed issuing $1.85 trillion of bonds. And so what you're seeing here is a massive overhang, a macro. I mean, I always draw it back to macro, but you you see a massive macro overhang of, of bond issuance. And so it's moving back to this sort of narrative of, okay, can the Fed really hold inflation? Can they really cut rates? Can they really cut rates that much? And so when it comes to PayPal, they've done really well, I think, and and outperformed on some of their metrics and their earnings and all that other stuff. And they're doing their best in this transition period. However, they can't fight the macro headwind of what's just happened. And so now we're seeing some of that hot money. There's a downtrend in PayPal. People bought it into the earnings. And then we've had this sort of, this thing in the last 24 hours with the issuance and all that narrative. And now it's selling back off. So I think that's really what's happening to the PayPal companies. I don't think it's much more than that.
0: So Trevor, this is my question to you. You're obviously chief technology officer, very specific vertical. But what Stuart was just talking about, when credit starts to make its way into your world, now credit hasn't been an issue. The winds seem to be changing a little bit. Does that play into what you're doing on a day-to-day basis?
3: On a day-to-day basis, we do think about it. But I think the biggest factor of credit inside of payments is online with buy now, pay later integrations at the point of sale. And this is where PayPal is probably under the most threat which is there are some extreme credible threats of like, why wouldn't I click that affirm button or why wouldn't I click that quad pay zip button if the option gives me four easy payments over X amount of time, right? And so the erosion of the value prop for payments and the way that credit intersects there, I think is powerful. That's not the business that we're in. We're really about banking technology. We're really about having that relationship with the customer. But where I see credit coming into PayPal's threat area is mostly on that point of sale. What are the the, ways you can get them. So yeah, let
0: me just, let me try to elaborate on that because yes, that's true. I totally understand it's technology play, but as credit becomes a bigger issue, my sense is people will find you in that environment where they have not had to move or search out. They will find themselves in an environment where they need to move and search. And I think that's why this credit environment, which I think we're on the brink of, works to your benefit. And you mean deteriorating credit. <laughs> Specifically. Okay, yeah, no. Yeah. Absolutely consumer- deteriorating. Yeah. Software.
3: Yeah. yeah and, and I mean, this is where you have to go to places that are technology enabled, like Current, because we can do the same services that a lot of banks can, but not charge fees for them because we don't have the same cost structures. So that macro environment pushes customers our way, absolutely. And it's been the main growth engine inside of banking for the last two or three years due to these factors and also due to the customer expectation of convenience and being able to get all the services in one place. And that's really where we come in, and and that's my day-to-day work. That's Stuart's day-to-day work.
2: I would also add that we just launched this product called Build, which is a credit-building product, In deteriorating consumer credit, high inflation that's sticky, which everyone is saying, or at least some market pundits. I think building and maintaining credit levels in a particularly hard time is extremely valuable for a lot of people. A lot of people trying to make ends meet. This product we just launched is doing extremely well, very timely for us. I know we've mentioned it before, but that's out and and flourishing
0: as we speak. All right, I'm going to spice this up a little bit. I'm going to read a tweet, and I'm going to get your guys' reaction here. (laughs) Wait a second. Stop for one second. Z, I'm sorry. You said you're going to spice. It has not been spicy enough for you? You're going to see where I'm going. Okay, that's fine. All right, so here's the tweet. Wait a second. Is just going to piss me off, mm. just, so I'm, just so I am just so I hope so. I, you already sound pissed off. But <laughs> no, 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 here's here's all
1: right, so here's the tweet. Um, this is from July 23rd. X is the future state of unlimited interactivity centered in audio, video, messaging, payments, banking, creating a global marketplace for ideas, goods, services, and opportunities. Powered by AI, X will connect us all in ways we're just beginning to imagine. Ben Diesel
2: yeah, I know, I think it is. It I might think it's be. Vin Diesel. Linda oh.
1: Yacarino. she is the new CEO of X. What does that mean to you, guys? Is she really the CEO? I don't know. But like, is that word salad? What is that? Like, you guys are building an app. You're doing a bunch of stuff that, that like, some of those words that were strung together, I think you guys have probably strung them together a little bit better. What does that mean to you? What do you guys think of when you think of this kind of desire for a super app? Elon has mentioned this on many of occasions over the years. He looks over at WeChat and what's been able to cobble together in that regard there. How, how do you guys think about that? And do you think anyone will be successful in creating that sort of platform here in the U.S.?
2: I, I'll go back to the macro view, which is you mentioned WeChat which is a a great product in a communist country, capitalist communist, whichever way you want to look at it. But it's command... Down. It's command controlled down. It's been told, like, this is how we're doing it. This is how it is. And you, we just don't know what's happened in the back, you know, in the back scene behind the curtain to enable that product to be really coagulated and consolidated into one place, meaning political party aff- affiliation, and also just one place that you can spy on people, right? And so that maybe that's like part of the tailwind that they have. When you come to America, I think people want choice. We have a federal system. It's confusing and it's hobbled together. 50 states kind of work together. We, we do this all the time in payments. It is not straightforward. And I think you just have a cultural slash political system that's just totally different. And so I don't know if you're going to have the same kind of success having one stop shop for everything. And it does feel sort of big brother, communist, maybe socialist kind of feeling to it. It knows everything I'm doing. Maybe the value, maybe I'm not seeing the value. Maybe there's such a step up in value. Maybe there's 100x more value than I can actually see at this point if I plug into everything, whereby all those concerns are assaged by the value that you get. But at this point in time, looking at Twitter or X, whatever I'm using now... I'm not seeing it at this point.
0: The more things change, the more they stay the same. Citigroup tried to do effectively be everything for everybody mm. a couple decades ago. Well, yeah, That didn't work out it didn't all work, that well. No. So yeah, it worked we'll, out for a little bit too. For a little bit. And then obviously the world changed under their collective. You can't be everything for all people, in my opinion. So here's another question for you, Trevor. We spent a lot of time on Fast Money talking about AI. And you've seen some of these stocks have gone ballistic on the back or the hopes of AI. My sense is this is something you've worked on for a while, but how important is that technology? Have you embraced it, integrated it into what you're doing at current? So a lot of the biggest gains that are happening
3: now, from a very practical standpoint, are mostly regarding customer servicing. So like, how do you handle an exception? Because that's where language comes most into it. Like these things, while they are getting better at responding to multiple modes, whether it's audio, visual... They're still mostly trained around language concepts. And the, the language concepts that we have are, hey, where's my direct deposit? Or, hey, I, I need to order a new card, these types of things. So that's where we're seeing it play out. And we have some integrations that we've launched and are continuing to launch that improve our servicing capabilities through that. So that's like the very first place. And I think that's the very first place for a lot of finance. But where it starts to get interesting is when you can start doing recommendations, right? Like all of this LLM stuff is autocomplete. That's is, what I was going to ask. Given your you. financial universe, what comes next? For you, So it's a natural extension of the way that technology is implemented. So that is something that I haven't seen yet. I think there's a lot of people who are pitching this, certainly. I'm saying like, this is how it's going to work. I haven't seen an example of it yet, but it does feel a bit inevitable.
0: It's interesting. Where's, you know, I need a new card. And so the next logical progression is we will furnish you with that. But does your husband need one? Do your children, are they of an age where they, sh- so the machines or the intelligence can start to think ahead of the curve? Does that make
3: sense? Totally, it's yeah, auto-complete your finances. That's the concept of if you're trying to show what comes next for someone, this is the perfect technology.
1: For that. So let's talk about, the as far as like practical use cases right now. That Those all make sense to us. But as a company that has to make decisions about how you deploy your resources and, and when you think about what are you guys seeing as far as the cost of compute when you're doing these integrations, you're testing these sorts of things, do you think that this is going to be something that will be an immediate return on investment? Because when guys started this conversation talking about what has actually been imputed by the stock market values, we are pulling forward a lot of really great outcomes right right now. So for a company like yours who are building technology, but you also are a user of a lot of technology, right? When you think about it right now, are you guys out there bidding for Nvidia, like graphics chips, well, you know what I mean? I, th-
3: I think one of the like things that hasn't been fully absorbed is the nature of this technology, which is once a model's been trained, It's extremely low cost to use, as opposed to like if you're trying to do, let's say, video streaming or file storage, where the usage from a cloud cost and a margin perspective is pretty linear with the cost of that. With this technology, you're paying up front for all of the training, but then the usage of it is close to free, because all you're doing is you're putting an input into a graph that's already been created. The, The cost goes into creating that graph. And then when you get the response out, you're
1: just... So is that why, though, there's a huge rush right now? Because obviously there's very few um, suppliers that actually have the chips that can go into these supercomputers and can do this sort of training right now. And so you feel that it's just the ones with the best relationships with NVIDIA right now. And we saw who they were. You you saw Microsoft, you saw Tesla, these companies, and and Google. they, They mentioned, I think, NVIDIA like 37 times on their conference calls or something like that. Or they talked, they said AI combined 37 times. But they all mention NVIDIA yeah. by name. So I guess the point here is that they get access to these chips, they get a lead on deploying these sorts of models, and then they get the return on the back end in the not so distant future. It's whoever has the best model in theory in like a perfectly rational
3: environment wins. But it's I think it's more than that, which is you need to have the distribution of the model. So I would be looking at the cloud providers. Google is probably best positioned out of anyone to do this at scale, which is it has to be integrated with the rest of your product suite. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be an engineer making a decision of how do I interact with this thing? Even if that interaction might be cheap, it needs to be easy. And it's not particularly difficult to distribute this in one place. OpenAI is is independent, Mm pseudo-Microsoft. But I think GCP and the way that they can integrate that sort of into their holistic product offering is another component besides just the model training firepower that you have for these chips. But that's no doubt super important. So two
1: weeks ago, Microsoft announced the pricing of their co-pilot, right? This is their productivity suite that's in using a bunch of these AI tools. And the stock, and we talked about it last week on the pod, rallied $130 billion in market cap, it rallied 5% in a straight line intraday. Now, it gave a lot of that back over the next couple of days, and now it's much lower. But when you saw that pricing, you got... Guys, again, you are licensing th- these sorts of technologies at $30 a seat, I think, is what they set up from 10 prior. Do you guys take pause at some of this? Will you guys be deploying these types of tools across hundreds or eventually thousands of your employees? Or will they just be a kind of narrow focus among specific users at your firm?
3: There, there's some pretty immediate tools that are pretty useful. There's This is like a very tech-specific thing. When you're writing code, you're doing that inside of a, another program, and that program that we happen to use is called IntelliJ, but there's tons of these things. Microsoft has their own uh, Visual Studio. There, there's, a, there's quite a lot of these what are uh, IDEs. The integration there for autocomplete on code is going to be a big productivity increase for developers, and that's where Copilot was really tested first, was integrated with Microsoft's acquisition of GitHub and really in the coding world. And it's a very structured language. It's one of the most natural things to benefit from this type of technology. So I think we'll see some pretty big productivity gains, but you have to balance that with security concerns. Can I let my code? go out. If someone's auto-completing, it means that I'm sending what I'm typing out to a server somewhere because that model isn't living on my machine. There's different ways you can do it. But I think once you get around, because we work in a highly technical compliance regulated space, PCI compliant, SOC 2, as long as we can navigate that appropriately, I I think we're going to be seeing a lot of productivity just within our own company.
2: I've talked to Trevor 10x engineers can be 100x engineers like really productive based on just this. like some of this like you some of your best engineers are just like phenomenal and so that has its own pay graph and structure and, and future curve. And then for a lot of people that were sort of filling in the blanks and weren't that technical, I think that those jobs are at risk. So there's like a balance, right? There's maybe a power law happening here through engineering resourcing. From a customer or member experience standpoint, obviously, there's like an, there's a lot of language. We're talking to customers in the phone. We're talking to customers in chatbots. We're talking to customers all over the place in disputes and fraud and all this other stuff. And so there is a natural cost saving and productivity gain there. Many companies have been using chatbots for 10 years. But we're talking like another level above, an order of magnitude of competency. Even telephone calls now can sound human-like from AI and can be on the fly answering questions as long as you've got all your data uploaded. I think I said this on our last podcast is the companies that have their data in order, that are connected to the cloud providers that are best in class with the AI and all the compute are the ones that are going to win. That's how it's going to work, or at least have the best cost savings or the best productivity for those companies.
0: So if you're nimble enough, which you are, and then able to integrate the technology which takes a 10x programmer to 100x, that gives you tremendous advantage. I totally understand that. The existential risk, it seems to me, not only on a business side, but on a technology side, and this is just me spitballing, if an Amazon decides, all right, we're getting into this space and we're going to throw these resources at it, is that something that concerns you or do you feel you're sort of well-suited, well-armored to take on something like that? We'll buy tools from anyone
3: right and so you, a lot of these cloud providers they are the things that we build our product out of they're not building the businesses that we care about they're part of our cost basis if amazon comes out with better tools we'll use that we we actually use aws for a couple of things at current we use gcp for most things but we use aws as well for places that they are quite good at so i think competition is awesome for this we're going to get the best models in the ai front like we'll get the best models at the best price and there's so many specializations that already are, are coming out depending on how they're being
1: trained. So Stu, I know you look at the um, public markets just as a bit of a hobby, and, and, and I know you started there anyway. What do you think, if you are like just a naysayer, is at least on the price action of these like trillion dollar market cap companies that have gained a couple trillion dollars in market cap among them because of just excitement in and around this secular movement, which it's happening, okay? But again, my point is in the near term, it feels like it's pulled forward a lot of excitement And we really won't see this drop to the bottom line, at least, and also in these early guys, for probably a couple quarters. And that's one of the reasons why Microsoft is down 10% over the last two weeks, okay, because they guided and it wasn't that people didn't get the payoff. And I don't know why they would have. But do you guys think right now is if you can take out some of the noise, okay, and take a little of the froth out of this market a little bit, are these like trends that you want to invest in Microsoft and in Google and Amazon, like once the fever breaks a little bit, is this going to be a multi-year thing for these guys?
2: Yeah, hundred percent for me, I think I multi-year, Man, I can't even do that anymore. But I could do a year out maybe now. I asked me 10 years ago, I would have said multi-year. I, I think right now, I, everything you said checks with us, or at least with me, is that it's been a hype cycle. It's very frothy. That NVIDIA CEO is a great salesman. And so he gets very, everyone really excited about what it, what's happening. But we're not going to see immediate returns. Look at our company, right? We're just getting around to some of this stuff. Maybe we see some gains, some productivity gains this year. Majority would probably be next year. But that would be it for a while, right? Because then you'd need like another order of magnitude of innovation around all these different use cases and niche things that, that Trevor's saying, and that takes time to get to. So when it comes to price action, I think it's still macro. I think it's still the debt side of things. I think this is going to pull back even more. And then you want to start buying at the appropriate price. Price is just what you're going to get out over how many years pull forward. And so maybe we pull that back in, the price comes off, and then it's this time yeah. to get in.
3: And also, like, this technology is fundamentally deflationary. If you're looking at, and you said it yourself, okay, co-pilot, $30 a seat per month, and this does three times what the other person was doing? Where it, it's kind of how we're are you going gonna, with has Microsoft already been valued for all if they're charging 30 bucks a month because that's how cheap the technology but, but, but I also is. say
2: for their own engineers yeah so you, so Google Microsoft, Amazon they have been the main uh, purveyors of engineers for the last 10, 15 years and all of a sudden they don't need them why do they need this? Yeah, but that,
1: that was the thing that I just <laughs> found astounding Because Guy and I were doing one of our shows and that headline came out and the stock went up 5% and this is a $2.5 trillion market cap company and Amy Hood, the CFO of the company, I think the week earlier, was talking about before they had the pricing out of the, she said this is going to be our fastest business at $10 billion in sales ever. So I did that $10 billion and then I looked at the market cap gain and I'm like, it's trading at 13 times sales, the sales that they haven't even registered yet. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm you know what them. I'm saying? And- You don't know what that's going to cannibalize. Does that come at the expense of something? You guys negotiate. You just said, we're going to get the best stuff at the best price. So you may say, okay, we'll take 150 of those seats, but we're going to actually need to have better pricing on this stuff over here. So I just think the markets lost their minds about this stuff. And I will tell you, to me, the best way to play this is if we had the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, which we know that those top eight stocks, that all of them, if they're not exposed to this multi-year trend trend, okay? They will be. And I'll throw Apple in there at some point too, right? That's the way to play it because those top eight stocks make up 50% of the QQQ. But you can't buy it when it's up like this before we even know
0: how it's all going to be, in my opinion, how it's going to play out, especially in the middle of the mania. Here's a question for you. This is for Trevor. Erin works here. She does a great job. People know she, they see her. I like her. People see Stuart. I like him. I want to So I understand how you would acquire clients based on those things, those human things. My question to Trevor is, does client acquisition come in the form of technology? Can you do things on the technology side to help with client acquisition? I think that's almost our entire business, which is
3: we are creating products that need to sell themselves. Yes, we market and we go and we get awareness and and these things. But at the end of the day, we are building something that's more valuable to our customers. And we're doing that with technology. And that's the acquisition.
2: Marketing has been an interesting uh, spot for at least our industry for the last couple of years. Ever evolving, ever evolving. The biggest thing that happened to us, our industry, was the Apple-Facebook privacy dispute a couple of years ago. And so tracking across multiple platforms was very hard. It was hard to personalize advertisements to particular segments. And of course, it does look like Apple is trying to cannibalize or internalize that that functionality and eventually launch their own ad network, right? So if that happens, I would be a buyer of Apple because we'd definitely be marketing on that platform in a broader way than we are right now. But at this point, it's actually regressed a little bit in terms of like how you're approaching the top of the funnel marketing. So it's, But we are using things like digital TV, streaming TV that's digital, like Hulu, Netflix. So we can be quite targeted. It's not like broadcast. So we can be targeted. And, and so then the interplay of that with various digital channels, I'm showing the value at different stages of people's lives and things like that. And understanding exactly where their intent is how we market. So it's extremely in-depth, complicated stuff use a variety of tools to do it. What's
1: well, interesting that you mentioned Apple's got 2 billion iOS installed base. And you think about yeah. the power of that and they cut with the ATT, they cut a lot of ties to a lot of folks who used to like to track things across their hardware and their platform. And then you think about Amazon has this huge advertising business that's just growing. Netflix just turned on advertising. Uber's results, I don't know if you saw it earlier in the week, they're talking about it. When you open your Uber app, all of a sudden you're seeing ads in there and they're actually pretty well placed. The ad stuff is the, like the high margin stuff for a company like Amazon and Apple's business will be absolutely huge. All right, guys, so this was really Hold good. Hold on, before we get yeah, out of here, yeah, yeah.
0: and you might edit this out so nobody would know if you did it, but I'll say this. So Stuart just said something about privacy, right? And nobody even, bat, I batted my eyes, but you go out to the Hamptons out there east and you see those big things. They're called private hedges. That's to keep things private from people. We use the word private here in the United States, but he's talking privacy. That just shows you the difference between your upbringing and my – I'm an animal and you're sophisticated. Anyway, I just thought I'd that <laughs> yeah, cut that in. We're
1: definitely going to cut that out. Thank um, you, <laughs> All right. Trevor Marshall and Stuart Sapp, Thank thanks for joining us on the tape. Thanks yeah, for being so Thanks.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.